the opportunity to do it or to orange pill countries, whole countries, needs to come from both the top because those are your big levers is when you get politicians to understand why the system operates the way it does and why that is or isn't a good thing and what an alternative system offers, um, but also from the grassroots, you know, which is getting small businesses and individuals who make decisions about how to send and receive money between the population of a country to also recognize the opportunity. And that, I think, has been Bitcoin's success story to date. Kia folks, and welcome to the Blockchain New Zealand podcast. I'm Jeff Nicey, and today I'm talking to Simon Collins. Simon is the founder of Stacker, a Bitcoin mining company that uses sustainable and renewable energy sources. Simon is also the lead on the fundraising campaign to Orange Pill New Zealand Parliament, and that's what we're going to talk about today. As we lead up to an election here in New Zealand, you know, we're listening to a lot of promises from the parties, many of them economic but none of them are talking about potential alternative financial paths. The fundraising goal is simple, raise enough money to buy 120 copies of the Bitcoin standard to send to all members of parliament for New Zealand's next 54th parliament. You can find the fundraiser on Geyser Fund, that's G-E-Y-S-E-R dot fund, and search for NZ Parliament, or check out the link in the show notes. The Blockchain New Zealand podcast is brought to you by Easy Crypto. Five years ago, a passionate bunch of Kiwis created Easy Crypto in New Zealand to enable Kiwis and others to buy and sell cryptocurrency. The Easy Crypto website is simple and straightforward. They have heaps of great educational content that caters to both beginners and experts and are very transparent about fees. You can buy crypto with New Zealand dollars or with your credit card and get crypto sent directly to your wallet. Investing in cryptocurrency can of course be risky, so always do your own research. Visit easycrypto.com to start your crypto journey today. Simon, thanks for taking the time this morning and uh, good to finally hook this up with you and be able to have a chat. Um, yeah, no, it's great to finally uh, make time to, to have this catch up. So we are, I'm just looking at the date now, we're about exactly one month out from an election and that's why I wanted to talk to you today. Uh, so you're running this campaign about orange pilling New Zealand Parliament. And, you know, when I first saw it a couple of months ago pop up on Twitter, I kind of did a double take. I was like, I was like, oh, hang on, this doesn't, you know, it didn't necessarily fit with my conception of New Zealand that someone would be uh, attempting to run this campaign in New Zealand. Um, of course, that's just from my, my preconceptions. And uh, so I wanted to just, yeah, get into it and uh, maybe start with like a like, a, what does orange pilling mean? Like, what is what is that all about? And is it like drinking the Kool-Aid? <laughs> well, I hope actually it's um, it's almost the opposite of drinking the Kool-Aid, where, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid is um, taking on somebody's perspective um, as your own without having done any due diligence or any any consideration um, <clears throat> or taken any real consideration of, of reality or... or um, looked critically at what is being offered as a philosophy, as a course of action, um, that kind of thing. Whereas orange pilling, I feel, and at least I would hope, reflects literally the opposite. Like it is asking people to look at something objectively, which they have not necessarily done before. And um, uh, I actually look back to one of my first ever podcast episodes that I recorded um, when I was starting my journey as a Bitcoin professional. Um, and we talked, I talked with that host about 
Plato's cave and how our financial system is kind of like, um, is, is the only world we've ever been shown. Right. And, um, and in that world, we're told that inflation at around about 2% is a good thing. We're told that central banks and, um, and their role in creating and managing the money supply and that's the quasi government entities that are banks being in charge of issuing money through a debt-based system um, is objectively or is the best way to manage the money supply in, 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 a, in an economy. And then along comes a completely left of field, uh, left field alternative um, financial system in Bitcoin. And it forces you to look more objectively at what we're being offered um, actually delivers to us and what it delivers is massive inequality. Um, it's, it, it creates, you know, what we call the Cantillian effect, which is that um, that's inequality that's created through um, uh, unfair access to new capital that's created through expansion of the money supply. And um, it's what's driving a huge financial wedge through the haves and have-nots in not just our society in New Zealand, but globally. And so orange pilling as a process is asking people to compare and contrast these two financial systems. And when people do that, what I tend to find is that um, it's very hard to ignore the downside in the system that we kind of, kind of currently live under and really hard to ignore the upside that's offered in a Bitcoin based. Yeah. I mean, I, I like how you like turn that around. Uh, so, I mean, the idea, uh, I say it in jest, but the idea of like drinking the Kool-Aid, right. Is that, like you said, you don't do any due diligence and, uh, you're, you're, yeah. you're you know, joining a movement or you're going along with the crowd or you're sold a lie. And, you know, al although it's like a nice meme, orange pilling really just is asking you to kind of another one, do your own research. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, oh, I deliberately steer clear of the do your own research meme in and of itself, because I think that um, has become pretty horrendously correlated or well, not It has become correlated with some really kind of outlandish and extreme perspectives. And it tends to be um, the, I've got no answer, answer to a curly question about your strongly held, but not, firmly evidenced beliefs right when you get into an argument with somebody about vaccines or carnivore diets or any of this kind of stuff and um and these kind of freedom loving um clicking at my dog <laughs> not as another human um uh types of people that's that's where they end up in a debate is well i'm sorry but you need to do your own research or i've done my own research and i'm satisfied with my answer i don't think doing your own research necessarily means that you come to the right um answer every single time um, but all we can ask of people in the process where we're look, getting them to look at something is for them to try to be objective. So you think critical. that do your own research has gone too far and is sort of used uh, as it's been weaponized? I think, uh, look, I think I just, I, I, it's just how you yeah. see it deployed, right? It's a, it's a, it's the hand throw up. I don't have, I don't have an answer to your question, but I'm not going to change my perspective, even though I've reached the end of where I can reasonably articulate an argument for why vaccines cause um, heart problems or kill people or turn people's blood black or 
um, that COVID was from a lab or any of these kinds of um, conspiracy theories. Um, do your own research is kind of right. Catch Those cry. are very curly questions. Uh, I mean, in terms of do your own research, right? Ben McKenzie, he goes on uh, CNBC and he says, like, guys, I, I've done two years of research here. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you'll know this as an academic, like to actually do research is not um, is not something that the average person is kind of qualified to do in a meaningful way and to come to conclusions that are generalizable um that are like statistically significant that are meaningful in a in anything but a very specific context let alone in a global sense is is a really big undertaking and it's not necessarily something you can do even with two years on google without any kind of structure framework peer review process to actually validate the findings of your quote unquote. Yeah, even with proper training, it can be very hard to overcome those biases, right? Like if you're looking for reasons why something will fail, you know, maybe if you search long enough, you're going to, you're going to find them. And that's exactly right. If you're convincing, you can go convince other people of that, uh, of that as well. Um, That's how you get them to drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah, I mean, that that's ultimately more about like, being a being a deceptive sales person, isn't it? Um, you know, convincing people that that you're yeah. someone that you're not, and and that they are also someone that they're they're not. Um, and I, I suppose we, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin aside, we can see this. Uh, you you can find examples anywhere with this type of thing. With uh, this dude in the cave, Plato's cave. Uh, can can you, can you give me? Uh, a quick overview of what it means to be in the cave. Yeah, cool. So Plato's cave is is one of those um, allegories from uh, from ancient history. Literally, Plato's uh, Plato's writing, which um, he envisioned um, three people who had been either born or taken to a, a cave at a very young age and um, tied up so that they couldn't do anything but look at a puppet show that was being projected from behind a fire onto the cave walls that gave them a a representation of reality and they grow up believing that this is reality that you know these dancing shapes on the wall are truth uh, are the world and this is the world they live in and there's nothing outside uh, what they're being shown and then one day one of them escapes and leaves the cave goes outside into the sun and 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 frolics for a bit i'm sure and then comes back to tell the others that there's a whole world out here and it's not just puppets on a wall it's um it's more than that there's sun and sky and grass and um unless and 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 the the allegory goes that the two who are still tied up in the cave they reject this view of the outside world because they've never been taught or shown or um, enabled to visualize or understand anything outside um, that world that they have been that have been shown and it's an allegory for the fact that um, your you know your environment shapes who you are and it affects your conception of reality and it's only once you're able to step outside it and look back on it that you can ever kind of um, that you can ever um, view it with any objectivity, and so that's what I'm kind of saying about the financial system. 
is that until you know you're given a meaningful alternative to a debt-based financial system um, as a as a as a fuel for growth, you don't question it, and then you find that somebody presents you with an alternative, which is you know Bitcoin, a deflationary monetary system um, that's based on you know proof of work rather than issuance of debt. Um, it's far easier to find the flaws and understand why it creates the problems in the system that it does um, than when you're completely confined to it. And, you know, there's a good book, which is worth a read called why the yuppie elites reject Bitcoin when they should be Bitcoin's perfect target market, right? They're all digitally uh, capable and interested and, um, and have grown up with an internet and the digitization of everything. Uh, but it's still Bitcoin still doesn't resonate in the way that you might expect. And it's because they are, you know, entrenched in the system, um, which would require them leaving an awful lot behind to fully transition to something new, even though it is perfectly aligned with the way that, are, you know, are these Gen Z folks that have been raised uh, only on the elite side is, or is it slightly? Yeah. And, and and millennials and um, yeah, I mean, it's people who grew up in a digital world. I mean, I probably, I remember our time before the internet, um, but only just. Yeah. Um, but I'm still as fully digitized as as anybody you could ever imagine. Um, but for some reason, it you know, Bitcoin and, and it as a system resonated with me very kind of um, firmly, um, for a number of reasons. But yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of people who I would have expected. I, you know, like what I've never understood is why every single IT professional in the world isn't a Bitcoin millionaire. I would have <laughs> thought that it would be exactly aligned with the kind of way that people who work in, in computers and computer science live their entire lives day to day, but they're not. That, that's Plenty right. of I mean... them are happy to let it go as a kind of, you know a cult or a, a crypto bros kind of, um, you know, flash in the pan fad. I mean, it kind of gets into this other side of, of money. Like you can take, you know, very professional, very smart, very technologically enabled folks. Uh, and then like behind closed doors, when you're looking to see what they're doing, where they're investing or what, what they're interested in, um, you know, like you say, you might be surprised. You'd be like, what? You you should be the first type of person to appreciate, you know, this technology, this scarcity, this fixed supply, this alternative, or even or even as like a, a small gamble against, you know, the, the system that we have. But uh, I, I think a lot, it goes to say a lot about how, you know, we just aren't open about money. We're not open. Like you, you don't necessarily go around asking people what they're doing with their money. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think it's probably, I think you, you kind of elucidated a, a key point here, which is the reason is most people aren't experts in economics or well-versed in the history of money or have kind of acknowledged that um, there's any kind of potential flaw in a system which at its base is about the creation of a, a you know, a promissory note or a token that is simply for the means of exchanging goods and services. But what we need to realize about money is that it is um, 
an entire system that sits behind it is what is corrupted. Like there's, if you could, if you could say to me tomorrow, we're going to get rid of all of the the nonsense around money, all of the um, the interchanges, the banking nonsense, the interest rate controls, um, and we're going to have a fixed supply of a hard asset, um, and it's but it's going to be called the New Zealand dollar. Then that might just about be sufficient to put the nail in the coffin of something like Bitcoin, but that's not going to happen. You know, this system is entrenched, and there is so much wealth that is inherently um, tied to the way that the system functions, that all that stuff is here to stay unless you dismantle it and recreate something better elsewhere. This is uh, one of the attacks or one of the threats to to Bitcoin, uh, or some people say it's the only threat to Bitcoin, is that if we take like a modern wealthy nation and they completely rewrite their own monetary financial system, uh, as, as you mentioned, that could potentially... Uh, you know, be the one threat. That's a, yeah, exactly right. I mean, you know, um, that being said though, again, these countries can't afford, at least at the current time, to dismantle the system that they've built because the system relies on their ability to issue more money when they need to pay for government function, uh, when they need to, uh, you know, represent like they've grown an economy that is entirely you know almost entirely services and property based um it's just it's i'd love to see it it'd be a fascinating experiment but the reality is with developed countries they're also risk averse to this kind of change you do you mean services and property as opposed to commodity yeah well i mean you know the developed economies of the world have outsourced the genuine creation of value through manufacturing or issue, you know the development of new supply of 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 property um and they've outsourced that to the developing world china yep. and bangladesh and india and um you know other countries that now are the manufacturing base for the entire planet and the energy sink that that comes along with being a manufacturing nation and now we just build services on top of um, on top of debt, on top of property, and um, are grinding the value of every single dollar into the ground by issuing more and more and more debt every year, and every cycle, and every post recessionary cycle. I mean, I, I I hear what you're saying, but how you sound like a crazy person, right? <laughs> like it, I know, life, life I know. And this is it's so difficult. So well, it's so. Ask ask somebody whose um, interest rate went from two point eight percent to eight point two percent between the times that they were required to fix yep. their uh, their their interest rate as to whether or not everything's great. Yeah, especially on borrowings of a million dollars or more. So we've been in the cave now for about 90 years this month. It was 1833 the RBNZ was established. Um, And, you know, I I had to look it up. Of course, I don't remember this, but prior to that, New Zealand was on a little bit of a little bit of a gold standard for a while. Uh, They were they were operating de facto through the British pounds. And so, I mean, there's almost no one alive today that you know, could, could answer any questions about that era. 
Uh, and if they could, they were, they were tiny, they were small children. Um, so like, yeah, how, that's right. How are yeah. we going to convince folks that there's more outside the cave and, and are politicians a good place to start? Yeah. So this is, um, I think, I think the opportunity to do it or to orange pill countries, whole countries needs to come from both the top. And that's why, you know, the campaign, because those are your big levers is when you get politicians to understand, um, why the system operates the way it does and why that is or isn't a good thing and what an alternative system offers. Um, but also from the grassroots, you know, which is um, getting small businesses and individuals who make decisions about how to send and receive money between, you know, the population of a country um, to also recognize the opportunity. And that, I think, has been Bitcoin's success story to date is in convincing individuals that this is a better alternative and and you know there is a 300 million plus strong network of these individuals around the world and growing at the rate that only a network effect can kind of give you so you know soon it will be 500 million and then it will be a billion and then it will be whole continents and then it will be uh the entire world will at least understand and be happy to send and receive value in bitcoin at the top end, you know, the, at, the, at the, the level of governments, um, it's really important that the regulatory way is clear for this to occur, right? We do see whole governments uh, trying to ban Bitcoin, and that would make it much, much harder to build, obviously, much, much harder to build the kinds of services on top of Bitcoin that allow people to um, interact with it in a meaningful way, in a way that adds value to them in their lives. At the moment, you know, it's great. I had lunch with somebody uh, this week down here at Christchurch. He came up from Queenstown. We had lunch, and he bought lunch, and I sent him, I sent him Bitcoin um, to pay him back for that. Um, at the moment, those are kind of the only sorts of transactions that um, kind of occur on the Bitcoin network. Obviously, that's how it was envisioned was as peer-to-peer cash. But eventually we need um, really like genuinely functional and well-integrated point of sale systems so that people can take Bitcoin over the counter at their stores so that they can pay their suppliers in Bitcoin and so that people can send and receive in the kinds of um, currencies that they want because, you know, there's no, uh, there's no borders to Bitcoin. So if you wanted to um, send the same sets between you and you and I, which we could do literally over this video call, um, sending the same sets to somebody in El Salvador or somebody in, you know, um, Nigeria or somewhere in Europe or, or United States. Um, so we'll need services that kind of allow them to then utilize those sets and their jurisdictions as well. And you can imagine how unlocking that kind of, um, seamlessness in in exchange and remittance unlocks so much potential globally for collaboration for trade for um for uh reducing the friction in um 
and doing all of those things, but also reducing inequality in a financial system that currently draws, you know, arbitrary geographic borders around people's ability to send and receive money. Yeah, that remittance thing, it's still a huge market, right? And it's almost, uh, I feel like it kind of ebbs and flows in the in the arguments, you know, for, and that kind of maybe disappears for a while. Yeah. Uh, uh, but f- for sure, that's that's not going away. <laughs> No, well, remittances, global remittances is, is, is a $600 billion a year industry. So largely migrant workers around the world send money home. They, you know, they take um, risky or low paying jobs in other countries because there's no work in their country or the work is even more risky or dangerous. They're often undocumented. They're often um, housed or fed in poor conditions, often their passports are, um, are confiscated and often they're paid in cash, which means they have to take risks in sending money back to their families back in their home countries. So that uh, uh, often means either sending physical cash, it often means using a, um, a remittance service like a Western Union or, or a MoneyGram or any of those. And the average... Um, commission on those transactions is eight percent or more um africa is the most expensive uh, continent to send money to with an average cost per transaction of 20 percent something like 12 percent of those transactions get lost um a lot of the time people who show up to receive those money they go to a they go to one of the offices of these businesses and they uh they um, unable to produce ID, and so they can't claim the money that's been sent to them. Um, Bitcoin offers a way for those people to send and receive every single sat, every single uh, instance of value that they earned and is available to send back. Um, and I saw it um, well articulated in an article the other day who said that the ability to store your wealth should be a human right. And at the moment, it's not because we have a system, again, that only 1.5 billion people out of 8 point something on the world actually have access to. So we in New Zealand, Australia, UK, United States, we enjoy a, uh, a level of financial service that is only available to the top 20% of the planet. The middle 50%, so about four and a half billion people, they are what we call underbanked, which means they may have access to like rudimentary banking system uh, services like remittance corridors, um, like a bank account in some instances at the top end. Um, and then the bottom kind of 2 billion people have access to absolutely no banking services at all. Um, some of that is geographic. There aren't many um, ANZs in the middle of Mongolia, but also in a lot of instances, they just don't have enough money to make them worth doing business with. And that's, you know, part of the engine that banks are. They, they harvest billions of dollars from economies um, um, globally, and uh, they only do business with you if they can charge you fees to make offering those services worth it. With Bitcoin, you can store your wealth in 12 words in your head you can store it on a piece of paper if you've got access to the internet once a week or once a month 
you can still store and access and send and receive value without incurring any fees unless you need to interact with the network. And so as a an enabler of that sort of human right and kind of human, you know, kind of equity and dignity, it's a game changer. I would agree with you. 100% it has to be a human right. Uh, also access to banking uh, or um, being able to to choose how you transact financially. There's a, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, there's 8.7 women in Afghanistan that are prohibited from having a bank account by law. 8.7% million? Mi million women in Afghanistan. Um, and so a lot of them will use a, like not even a, a, a high-end smartphone, just a very cheap smartphone, yeah. and they transact on the Lightning Network using Bitcoin between themselves to, you know, exchange items to settle accounts um, and it's not technically a bank account and it's something that they can easily hide from you know authorities that would seek to That's right. uh, Digital continue only to oppress them yep. and exactly i didn't realize africa had such high remittance rates i mean i don't know what threshold it becomes extortion but 20 percent. i mean one one work day a yeah. week and that goes straight into straight into i guess it's called fees right Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And not only that, but like some of these countries like Nigeria have some of the harshest capital controls in the world. So your ability to send uh, the Naira, which is the, the local currency, out of Nigeria is stringently controlled. And that's because the government um, is, well, um, I don't think it's going to shock anybody to say like, you know, shockingly corrupt, um, but also desperate to keep um, control over the system right. in that country. Yeah, giving up, uh, I mean, giving up something as, uh, at first it seems benign, giving up something like uh, choosing to, being able to let people choose to use Bitcoin. Um, but add up all those 20% remittance fees, add up all of the, uh, I mean, yeah. I guess I guess there's a few countries where, you know, uh, is bribery is the way that business works. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, a, a lot of it never, never makes it down to the folks that have to totally. hide their cell phones look countries like tonga um in the pacific their economy is more than 50 percent remittances so imagine what difference an extra eight percent makes to the economy of tonga if you get to keep it rather than rather than rather than be charged those that as a fee to send that money back all right so you know we talk a lot about um cost of living, finance, interest leading into this election cycle. Hot topic. There was a debate just last night between the political parties about this. Um, and, you know, being as how it seems it seems to be front of mind. There's there's a few issues that are always front of mind in politics, but it, it seems like interests, cost of vegetables, for example, are, are easy things for the media and the politicians to punt back and forth. Um, you know, nobody's talking about any alternative to this. And when they talk about reducing spending, they're talking about s reducing spending from like five billion down to like four, or th you know, a, a slightly smaller number than five billion. Um, nobody's nobody's talking about a long game either. Uh, so, how do you see? I guess how do you see this playing out? Right? How are even if you have crypto sympathetic or Bitcoin? Um, 
sympathetic politicians, you know, what type of influence can they have over this extremely entrenched system? Yeah, well, I mean, that's it's a it's a really tough it's a really tough question. I mean, in Argentina, where um, they have suffered under hyperinflation for most of the last of the ten most of the last ten years, they have a leading political candidate for president who is running on a platform of abolishing the central bank. Um, now that has emerged out of a out of a situation where. Um, People have suffered under this kind of um, mismanagement of a of a financial system for so long that they're now ready to take quite extreme action to um, to to try and alleviate it. They're at the point of desperation because it would be a massive financial experiment in a modern economy to remove the central bank as a um, as a as the issuer of a currency and, and actually in all in all fairness in a modern financial system the central bank isn't the issuer of new money it is the one that sets the terms that new money can be issued under it's banks who then build a business around issuing new money and so they have the incentive to issue as much new money as they possibly can uh, at the interest rate and margin that they're allowed to now obviously We've touched on the fact that um, I grew up, you know, relatively digitized uh, or in a digital age. Many of the people, everybody who's younger than me would have grown up almost exclusively in a digital age. Um, I, what the kind of hardcore Bitcoin approach would be, would be to um, replace a human system that is fallible with a software system that is infallible. And you build your system around something that has known terms, conditions, um, behaviors, and you know what effect you'll create when you interact with it in a certain way. And um, and that's what you know the opportunity is. You can stop hanging off the whim of a central bank governor who is not even an elected official. They're appointed by a government at the time that they need a new governor right, otherwise in a friendly manner exactly exactly and they're you know they have the job until they don't want the job anymore basically and so this person gets to effectively make the um the key decisions about which direction the economy takes and whether or not um you get to keep your house whether or not you have to spend a certain proportion of your average earnings per week on maintaining ownership of a property or whether you get pushed out of it or whether you get to, you know, live in a lap of luxury on low interest rates. The alternative solution is to, is to replace that with software. Now, how do we get politicians to kind of understand that opportunity? I look, I think it's a slow grind. And I think the important thing again is to help them to understand why Bitcoin is so good as money, why it satisfies um, all of the attributes of money and why it exceeds the current system's um, quality of money by such a massive extent, other than the, uh, other than the, the attribute of, of track record, um, that this is something that we should embrace as a system rather than fight against. 
um, that we should be looking at solutions that allow people to use Bitcoin in their day-to-day lives because it's a way that they can save money um, and protect their buying power for the long term. It doesn't preclude using a New Zealand dollar. Um, and look, the Bitcoin maximal uh, community is going to um, is going to hate me for kind of saying this, but I think there's an opportunity for two systems to coexist. I mean, we already save in property. We already save in other types of investment like stocks, shares, bonds. Um, all we're saying here is that we extend another investment vehicle in Bitcoin to also being a liquid and spendable uh, money as part of an economy. We're also already a multi-currency country. It's relatively easy for most folks to bring their currency in and out. Yeah, that's right. I mean, again, you do that at, at your own cost and at, and at quite significant cost. Um, I'm working with um, a team on building a point of sale system for Bitcoin in New Zealand and the um, one of the killer costs and one of the key barriers to this is when we have to send money internationally to exchange it for Bitcoin so that we can bring Bitcoin liquidity yeah. into the system. There's a massive cost attributed with that. And, um, and it's in the order of, you know, 0.5 to 2%, depending on which service you use. But of course, a lot of the cheaper services uh, won't allow you to transact with Bitcoin. And this is what I'm saying. At the moment, we have a system that fights against the use of Bitcoin. And what we need is freedom to offer an alternative to people that just measures up to some of the existing alternatives anyway um, and combines some of the attributes of being liquid and being money, but also being a store of wealth and value. Um, We just need less oppression, more integration. To um, about some of these properties of money do you see it It sounds like you see that bitcoin has achieved both medium of exchange and store of value would you would you say yeah i think i mean this is what makes it so unique right like because the modern financial fiat system assumes a average or has a target average of a two percent reduction in spending power a year and i'm no good at compounding uh compounding uh, maths, but over 10 years, you've lost a massive amount of a dollar's value from the start of that decade to the end. With Bitcoin, it's a deflationary system. There is more scarcity over time. Less and less Bitcoin is issued every block over time, and we will eventually get to the point where so little is issued that effectively the Bitcoin in the system is is what's there to spend. And so you can count on the scarcity increasing, and you can count on the value of Bitcoin going up over time. Yes, there's short-term volatility, but 80% of the volatility in Bitcoin is in the upwards direction. Um, But also as a medium of exchange, it's inherently simple to exchange. I can send it to you over a video chat, as I said before. I I could send it to somebody else using little more than a piece of paper or the words that I store in my head. And it's a universal uh, means of exchange globally we can do it on any type of device we can do it on any type of internet connection um it's um it satisfies those attributes extremely well unlike a, a new zealand dollar try spending a new zealand dollar in sweden hmm. uh try spending a um you know try spending a pound in 
the Congo, try spending a euro in the United States, you know. Um, they're mediums of exchange with pretty hard limits. Bitcoin is acceptable and sendable anywhere. Uh, so, I mean, Safetyne talks about a bunch of this in, in his book. I dug out my uh, my copy today uh, to have a look. Nice. This is, uh, and, and as I was flipping through the front, I, or it's on the back cover here too, I was like, oh, this, this is one of the... Uh, one of the pre-squabbles between Nassim Taleb and Safety. So it still has Nassim's uh, <laughs> forward in the front, which has been removed from subsequent printings. <laughs> yeah. But um, so just on, just on this point about uh, deflationary uh, issuance, right? Like uh, this, this shouldn't yeah. work, right? And like what happens, what happens when there's very little left and everybody's hoarding, hoarding their Bitcoin? Like uh, this is a, this is a little bit of Bitcoin one hundred and one here, but um, yep. you know the the two percent figure you cited, and uh, I I I quote it as as three. Um, I think in practice it's more right. like four to twenty or or something much much bigger. And it depends what you buy in a given year, right? If you if you bought a house and or if you were looking to buy a house at any time over the last decade your inflation rate is far higher than a person who um, just bought fruits and vegetables and, and you know, went to the supermarket. But if you had to make a large purchase for a life, you know, a, a lifestyle item like a car or a house, your inflation rate was massive, especially if you're saving for a deposit in that time. Um, meanwhile, you know, there was kind of the silent assassin of shrinkflation that's crept in as well. I mean, the real inflation rate in any year and in any economy, um, especially over the last 10 years, has not been 2 or 3%. It's been orders of magnitude higher yeah. and for a long time. Yeah. When when you look at, you know, the, there's a bit of a lag in the stats, but when you look at them in aggregate, then you can calculate these numbers. And uh, year on year, I think I just saw a chart. It was like seven or eight for the past 20 years. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And 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 of course the official inflation is is um a movable object because it it's whatever suits <laughs> the entity who's reporting what inflation is, right? So you choose a, bun yeah. a bun bundle of household items that haven't moved much um when you need to keep inflation low and uh and you know, if you're tracking real inflation, um you might like to uh add in things that have, you know, inflated away or so you know, it's it's a it's also a very nebulous and kind of ill-defined uh, kind of social phenomenon. Meanwhile, back to your question, which is, hey, you like a deflationary system shouldn't work, and this is um, you know this is um, the key point in in the excellent book, Price of Tomorrow. We live in a world that is enabled constantly by more and more um, and more and more technical or or, or advanced technology. And technology is a deflationary uh, influence. Um, look at the relative price of TVs, of computers, of um, the kinds of, um, of, of cars, of all, all those kinds of uh, household items that you use all the time. The relative price of these things has been diminishing ever since we started um, you know really implementing technology into our lives into our lifestyles 
The reason that we don't actually see real-world deflation in prices is the debasement of money. We are printing more and more money to uh, basically fund the kinds of things that governments um, like to promise at election time um, and then can't really afford to do. And that doesn't matter whether you're from either end of the political spectrum. Um, you know, left-wing governments get called tax and spend. Right-wing governments like to finance uh, their activities through issuance of debt. It all amounts to the same thing, which is the debasement of currency. Um, and meanwhile, we're being told that deflation is a bad thing, but that's only because it doesn't allow you to continue growing the bubble of debt that you can no longer afford to service if the value of the dollar that you're in debt of goes up. It becomes relatively more expensive to service. A deflationary system um, with very near infinite divisibility, there are 2.1 quadrillion sats in 21 million Bitcoin and on Lightning or any layer two, you can issue those down to the level of millisats, which is another thousand or 10,000 or 100,000 or million sats, millisats under each Satoshi. There's no point at which each Bitcoin or each sat or each millisat is more than is worth transacting in. You can't buy a coffee with a sat because a sat's worth the equivalent of $100. Um, a deflationary system with more scarcity um, just enables more purchasing power over time. And that's that's what it's designed to do. It's designed to increase your purchasing power, not rob it from you through inflation. And uh, is anyone doing millisats? Yeah, Lightning does millisats. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I, I was, I'm not familiar with, with millisats. We're, we're getting really fine grain now. Well, you can imagine a world where the, um, you know, the, what is it? 40 quadrillion dollars worth of uh, liquid and illiquid uh, um, transactions that occur around the world every year are um, all done in Bitcoin. You might need a millisat um, to get down to the level of a 50 cent mixture at the, uh, yeah. at the local dairy. I'm bullish on micropayments and I hope that if it's on Lightning, that's fine. But wherever they are, I hope that we start to see some real economies for micropayments, streaming sats, this type of thing really, yeah. really emerge. Yeah. And this is this is the sort of the promise of an internet of money, right? And this is, again, what we're we're building here on Bitcoin is, is the internet of money. And I think this is, again, why so many people like myself are bullish on it. I, and as I sort of have suggested because of my age, I watched the internet um, emerge, take hold, be a hotbed of, you know, very uncool, very kind of not very interesting or impactful um, activity for probably more than 10 years before what you would describe as, you know, the killer apps started to emerge on the internet, like actual um, utility for day-to-day -day people. And, you know, my household, I was very fortunate um, that we were kind of early adopters of technology. So we had internet early. Um, we used the internet a lot um, for, you know, downloading, for, you know, news, for um, all that kind of stuff. And so I was able to watch the Facebooks, um, you know, the blog spots, uh, the news, all that stuff kind of emerge in real time. And now I'm, I'm literally watching it again on, on the internet 
of value. Do you think like we've had the internet of information? Now it's the internet, internet of, value, of value, and we're watching yeah. the same trajectory. I mean, the the com the compute is the the growth in compute, the growth in data and infrastructure. You know, that's that's all going to tick along in parallel. There's nothing anyone can do about it. Um, part of me th always thinks like it's incredible we haven't had an internet of money, uh, um, a native inter a native money on the internet for so long. Uh, and another yeah. part of me is like, well, it, it'll emerge when it's ready, when it's, when there's time for it. Yeah. And here we are. It's time. It's time is now. <laughs> um, back, back to the book. Do you think that, um, what do you think of the Bitcoin standard as, as a piece of nonfiction work? And do you think this is, do you think that... Uh, I guess, like, do you, do you think that as a cold introduction, this is where people should start? Yeah. So, um, I think it is. I think it's the best. Uh, I think it's the best introduction to Bitcoin for at least relatively technical readers. Um, you know, I think it's if if you don't have um, at least an underlying interest, it can be a bit of a slog. And this is, um, you know. This is one aspect that we have to consider in, in part of our campaign is um, are all of our 120 uh, targeted readers sort of um, interested enough in the in the alternative view of economics that it works very hard to present. And that's not necessarily just Bitcoin as a as a um, as a financial system or as an economic system. It's the Austrian view of economics, which is, you know, different to the Keynesian view, which is what most of the um uh you know taken as rote economic principles that policy is based on um is based in it's keynesian economics um and so what, what what we're toying with um for our campaign is that we may well split our purchase of books down party lines and we may purchase uh the bitcoin standard for the right wing side of parliament and we might purchase uh the new book um by uh Jason uh, Mayer uh, called uh, the Progressive Case for Bitcoin, uh -huh. which does an extremely good job of looking at Bitcoin um, less from the hard Austrian economics, which is relatively right wing in its kind of view, which you know is very um, hard on government spending as a um, as a way of creating value in an economy, um, and does a very good and. You know, the progressive case does a very good job of um, explaining why Bitcoin creates a more fair and equitable financial system and why the current system drives inequality into uh, into society. And so um, that's something that we're toying with at the okay. moment. Uh, we want to make sure that that's okay with our existing <laughs> and future donors yes. as well. So this is something that we will be um, will be updating our um, our campaign to reflect because it's not necessarily what our original um, donors added into uh, bought into, but the book hadn't come out at that time. Right. Um, I had a feeling you were going to say and, that. Yeah. I haven't read yeah. that one, so uh, unfortunately, I can't keep up on on that point. But by by progressive, we're talking it's, more liberal. Is that right? Yeah, that's 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I try really hard to not kind of plot myself on the on the the horseshoe. <laughs> of politics because i don't i don't think i re, i don't really like any of them to be perfectly honest with you uh, and i'm not i don't i don't consider myself particularly political hence trying to um 
uh, supplant most of politics with a piece of software. But um, but I think that um, we still have to play to the audience, and you know, Safedean has some very uh, strong and again, um, he does. He, do your own research. He's hardcore. Do your own research views on um, on climate change and that kind of thing. So, I certainly wouldn't want to put um, too many of his uh, other personal perspective and views in front of the Green Party, for example, that would be the best possible way to undermine the message of his book would be to have um, Chloe Spielberg look him up on climate change. So it may well be that there is a... <laughs> Don't do that, Chloe. Better, well, exactly. There may be a better way to address this. And, and I come back to what's the actual reason for this campaign? Um, it's certainly to get our government to acknowledge that Bitcoin is um, a serious, developing, um, and forceful change in finance and, and fintech and, um, and monetary systems globally and locally. Um, and it is to hopefully orange pill some of these politicians. Um, it is hopefully to get a certain percentage of them to even open it. But on the other side, it is also the opportunity to create some publicity in New Zealand for Bitcoin to demonstrate that we're a group of people who are organized, that we have a voice, that we have an articulated philosophy, that we um, we have a view on how things can and should be run, and that we are prepared to engage in a meaningful and good faith discussion about how this thing, this entity, this software, this network, this group of people, this asset can add value to New Zealand and shouldn't be fought against, it should be embraced, bought into the system to run alongside it for as long as it's necessary to see which one actually delivers the most value to people. Yeah, be careful there, Simon. Uh, organization's a dangerous word. It's a, we're a decentralized organization, certainly. <laughs> but, you know, like Bitcoin is our group, right? There's, you know, they're the most incredible community you could ever hope to engage with. Uh, no Bitcoiner has ever told me no. Like I, and that's, um, I, that's a, a truthful statement. I have traveled, I traveled through Asia uh, earlier this year. Um, I met uh, with Bitcoin groups in every single country and city that I went to. Um, they were always keen to have me along. They were keen to organize meetups around my schedule. They changed dates and meetups. They wanted to know what we're doing. They wanted to know how they can help. And it's the same going in the other direction. I put New Zealand and Australian Bitcoin communities together. Um, if somebody needs help setting up a lightning node, nobody has ever refused a request like that. Um, you know, we might not be a formal organization, but we are organized and committed to the development and and the adoption of Bitcoin. And so, yeah, I agree that we're organization is something that we have to be careful around with Bitcoin because it doesn't have an ownership structure. It doesn't have a group that manages it. And that's what differentiates it from other crypto is that it doesn't have a, 
a foundation or a VC backed company um, that has a vested interest in um, harvesting value from it. It is just pristine public infrastructure that allows anybody who is motivated um, or interested to contribute. It's a very positive, very optimistic, very well put. I think that might be a, a good place to wrap. Um, I got one rapid fire question for you today, okay. and that is, who is Satoshi? Oof, that's really hard. That's really hard. Um, I I have really, um, I have avoided really kind of commenting on this because <laughs> I think whatever you say, it's going to be wrong. I have, I have a, I have a, my real theory is that um, it's actually somebody we don't know or have never heard of. Um, it is somebody who genuinely did a good job of um, staying anonymous and um, we'll never know. If I was pushed, I would say it's Hal Finney. Okay, great. He was the only person who had the same level of knowledge about it at the same time as Satoshi. And so many of the test transactions and the original and the first transactions were between um, Satoshi and and Hal and um, Hal conveniently, well, very inconvenient for him and his family, but and, and very tragically probably for for the Bitcoin um, ecosystem uh, uh, passed away from ALS, so we can't ask him, um, and so we'll never know. I can tell you one thing: it's not Craig Wright. <laughs> I'll agree with that hundred percent. Oh man! <laughs> and he's probably going to sue me for that. So um, we'll split the legal fees. Uh, Simon, thank you very much for coming on the show today. And um, look, I, I want to have you back sometime to talk about proof of work. Um, Please, yeah, yeah. The... No, thanks for having me. It's great, great to talk about um, this side of Bitcoin because, yeah, you know, I do talk a lot about mining, but yeah. I also love talking about. It's, it's a potential impact. So thank you. In the uh, interim, for anyone that's made it this far, I'll direct them to uh, your recent podcast with uh, Darcy from Everyday Investor. And, uh, yeah, awesome. And they can check that out. Um, other than that, thanks a lot. Hey, thanks so much, Jeff. We'll talk soon. Thanks for joining us, folks. Look out for the next episode of the Blockchain News Event Podcast, probably in the same spot you found this one. Cheers. Cheers.